Through the year, we have been looking at uh, the, the different ways that, um, that we read God's Word. Um, I suppose looking at different literary styles and, and things like that, and uh, trying to really gain a bit more understanding about things. So we've been looking at different styles. We're having a quick look at wisdom literature through the summer, and last week I introduced that, and uh, hopefully... Uh, there it is. Um, we'll see if, this, uh, um, if I can manage to make this work. I gave a number of um, illustrations of, of uh, uh, ways that we can think about wisdom literature because it is different. Wisdom literature really refers to the books of Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and um, to a certain extent Psalms in that middle section of the Old Testament. And one of the things that characterizes wisdom literature is that there's a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphor. So if we try and read it as at face value and take it literally, it can get very confusing. I gave the example of two consecutive proverbs that appear to contradict one another. Um, Don't answer a fool according to his wisdom. And in the very next verse, it says, answer a fool according to his wisdom. Um, And so there's a lot of... um, a lot of things that can confuse us in the way we read it if we just think this is a straight narrative, just like reading the Gospels or Acts or, or something else like that. It's true of lots of different types of literature in the Bible. And one of the things that we as Christians have done over the years is tie ourselves up in a lot of knots in trying to understand what God is saying to us through the Bible by misunderstanding the way in which he's saying it. One of the images I used last week, there it is, was uh, this picture, which some of you will recognize is from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The end of the, uh, the film, when the, uh, for those that don't know, the Lost Ark of the Covenant has been found by Indiana Jones, of course, and uh, he's, uh, somehow the US government have got hold of it, and they've, they've put it in this big wooden crate, and it gets stored in this enormous warehouse of wooden crates that are uh, never looked at very much. And the picture I tried to give people was of the idea that in the wisdom literature in particular, God hides things from us in order that we can find them. See, often we hide things because we don't want people to find them, but sometimes we hide them because actually we do want them to find them, like an Easter egg hunt. I mean, some of you may do this, but most of us don't. If you hide an Easter egg and say, I hope the kids aren't going to find it because I'm going to go out later and get that. No, you put it somewhere where they can see it. And the younger the children are, then the more obvious you make it look. And that's what happens to us with the Lord. In order to help us progress in our relationship with him, he hides things from us so that we go looking for them and can find them. So the idea I gave people last week was of this huge warehouse and all of this that you see, all of it is yours, yours individually. That's the, the extent of what God's riches are for you. And you can go to any one of these boxes and you can open it and you can start to examine it and you can see within it the beauty that God has given for you. And you can, you can start with one box and you can go to another box. It's all yours There are no restrictions. It's all for you. So I thought what we'd do is we would take one part of the the wisdom literature, a bit that I've 
uh, got quite excited about recently, I suppose. And, um, and we try to do a little bit of examining of what it is. Let me also say at this point something about um, the different types of biblical, uh, different translations that we use or different versions that we use. Let me put it that way. I think they're really helpful because they give us different perspectives. Um, this version here, which I've uh, used a lot over the past decade probably, the New Living Translation, it really helped me. The, the version I was using previously, it gave slightly different angles, slightly different view on things, and it really helped me to see new things. It's not that I was wrong before, and it's not that I'm right now, it's just that I've got another perspective which I think gives me a rounder picture. Recently, uh, I've been using um, a new translation. Oh, it's disappeared. Don't, don't disappear on me. Uh, there we go. Um, recently, I've been using a new translation called the, the Passion Translation, and I'm going to use that this morning, not because it's better and not because it's worse, but because it gives another perspective. And I think with wisdom literature in particular, uh, this is really helpful. Uh, so I'm going to read it to you. If you have uh, access to it on your, uh, your mobile or your tablet, please feel free to follow it. If you don't, I hope that uh, my reading will, uh, will be all right for you. Uh, it's a fairly long passage, um, but I want to read it all, and then we're going to look at one or two short sections of it very briefly, and uh, I will attempt to finish in good time. Uh, Proverbs 31, uh, it starts at verse 10. In this version, it's called... Uh, let, let me just say this before I read it, actually. Sorry, I, um, I'll get there eventually. I really will. Um, I, I used to read this in, uh, in most other versions, and uh, in this uh, New Living Translation, um, it has the, the heading, A Wife of Noble Character. The more I've read that, and particularly having read a different uh, version now, the more I thought, that's a very incomplete view. Um, uh, when Anne was alive, I used to read this, and I used to try to kind of use this as a, a template to, to, uh, to be part of my, my praying for her and my imagining of, of, of what a, a wife of noble character would, would be. And uh, the more I looked at it, you know, it was one of those passages that I... I tried really hard to fit into it my religious presuppositions. The ideas that I brought to it, I tried to fit them into the way I was interpreting this passage. And I really tied myself in knots. I mean, there's, there's a bit in here which talks about um, purple linen. You know, she goes and she buys purple linen and she dresses a family. And never wore purple. I mean, she just wasn't her colour. She would never have worn purple. And I'm thinking, why am I reading about purple linen. What's it got to do with Anne? Um, and then there was something else about, um, uh, where are we? Um, she makes her own bedspreads. She didn't. <laughs> she went to Dunelm and bought them just like everybody else. Um, and then, because I'm a bit slow with these things, many of you will be much brighter than me, but uh, when I, I read it in this newer version, uh, the title is The Radiant Bride. And I started to realize that in this passage, God had hidden things about the bride. And the bride, in particular, refers to the church. 
uh, for those that um, uh, may not be aware, in the book of Revelation, one of the pictures of the, the church, in, in, and we're talking of the church overall, in its kind of um, final glorious state, is of a bride being prepared for a, a, a wedding. And uh, there's this image of, of a radiant bride. And here it is in Proverbs 31. So yes, he is talking about a bride, whoever's written it. It may have been Solomon, it may not have been. It doesn't really matter. Um, but it was written a long time ago, between two and a half and 3,000 years ago. Um, so it may be about a bride, and there are aspects of it that, that we, could, we could say, yeah, it's about a bride. But it's not just about a bride. It is, the thing with, with biblical prophecy is that it can be relevant at different periods of time. It can be relevant when it was written, because it was written for the people then. It can be relevant for a time in the future that we have since gone past, so we can look at it and say, oh yeah, I can see that that was relevant for that historical happening then. Like It may be the, the, the birth or the crucifixion of Jesus or something like that, but it can also be relevant for time yet to come. And that's the incredible thing when God inspires somebody to, to write. Um, it can still happen. It can still happen through the things that you say. It's not, you don't, you're not talking scripture, but if you're talking in agreement with scripture, it can still be happen. Okay, that's my introduction. Who could ever find a wife like this one? She's a woman of strength and mighty valour. She's full of wealth and wisdom. The price paid for her was greater than many jewels. Her husband has entrusted his heart to her, for she brings him the rich spoils of victory. All throughout her life, she brings him what is good and not evil. She searches out continually to possess that which is pure and righteous. She delights in the work of her hands. She gives out revelation truth to feed others. She's like a trading ship bringing divine supplies from the merchant. Even in the night season, she arises and sets food on the table for hungry ones in her house and for others. She sets her heart upon a nation and takes it as her own, carrying it within her. She labors there to plant the living vines. She wraps herself in strength, might and power in all her works. She tastes and experiences a better substance and her shining light will not be extinguished no matter how dark the night. She stretches out her hands to help the needy and she lays hold of the wheels of government. She's known by her extravagant generosity to the poor for she always reaches out her hands to those in need. She's not afraid of tribulation for all her household is covered in the dual garments of righteousness and grace. Her clothing is beautifully knit together, a purple gown of exquisite linen. Her husband is famous and admired by all, sitting as the venerable judge of his people. Even her works of righteousness she does for the benefit of her enemies. Bold power and glorious majesty are wrapped around her as she laughs with joy over the latter days. Her teachings are filled with wisdom and kindness as loving instruction pours from her lips. She watches over the ways of her household and meets every need they have. Her sons and daughters arise in one accord to extol her virtues, and her husband arises to speak of her in glowing terms. There are many valiant and noble ones, but you have ascended above them all. Charm can be misleading, and beauty is vain and so quickly fades, but this virtuous woman lives in the wonder, awe, and fear of the Lord." She will be praised throughout eternity. So go ahead and give her the credit that's due, for she's become a radiant woman, and 
all her loving works of righteousness deserve to be admired at the gateways of every city. Okay, we're going to look at one or two passages of this really quickly. Let's look at this one. Her husband has entrusted his heart to her. She brings him the rich spoils of victory. Thinking about it this way, her husband is the Lord. He has entrusted his heart to her. Think about that for a moment. God has entrusted his heart to us, his church. God, that's really... You have to remember, I'm not trying to to humanize God. God is still God, okay? He's God, he's divine, he's other than us. But it's saying here, he has entrusted his heart. When, when you're a guy and you get married, you entrust your heart to the person you marry. God is in the process of, of that type of union with his church. And he's entrusted his heart to you. Now, what do we do with the heart of God? When somebody entrusts their heart to you, it means that you can break it. You can hurt them. The church can break the heart of God because his heart is so turned toward us. His affection is so focused upon us. So I'm not, I'm not just talking individually. I'm talking corporately as well. The church has got a poor record. I mean, we've got a great record, but people don't see the great record. They see the poor record. If you look back over history, you know, we, we've, we've got some, some things that we've really done badly. And even today, there are some things we don't do well. And we don't reflect the beauty of who God is. We don't reflect his wonder. We don't reflect his love and his generosity. So when that happens, if we take this, this image with any kind of power or seriousness, we say, oh, Lord, we are so sorry. We are sorry. I, one of the things that's happened to me, and I've looked at this, this passage quite a lot during this week, it's led me to pray for the church much more, not just for the church, and personal you get included as well, not just for City Church, but, but for the church. That's all of us. That's the worldwide church. And, okay, I'm just one person praying for a lot of people, but I've, I've seen something different as I've considered this, and I've considered how it's possible for us to to really hurt God. Now, we don't, we don't lessen God in doing that, but we can bring him sorrow. And that just makes me not want to do that. It makes me not want to bring him sorrow. It makes me want to, to look at things that we're doing and saying, Is this, does this make you happy? Does this thing really make you happy, Father? So, this is one of those, that picture of the kaleidoscope, it's one of those things you can take, you can look through the kaleidoscope and you can kind of turn it. I close this eye, except I probably lose half of you um, and you can turn it and you just keep turning it and you're looking at it until it starts to to come into a shape where you're getting some insight some revelation from it that's what we do when god hides things for us to find okay let's go on we'll look at the second one she the church gives out revelation truth to feed others She's like a trading ship. This is why it, it just didn't make a lot of sense applied personally. If I'd ever called Anne and said, Anne, you're just like a trading ship. You know, those of you that remember her, you know how she had responded to that. I wouldn't have come out of that conversation well. She's like a trading ship bringing divine supplies from the merchant. 
In the New Testament, we have a parable that talks about um, the merchant seeking something. The merchant's a picture of God there. This is a picture, similar picture, where the merchant is the Lord. The church is like the sort of the vessel that takes truth from the Father to bring it to others, to the church and to uh, those not in the church, the hungry ones. Even in the night season, even when things are dark, even when things are difficult, she, that's us, arises and sets food on the table the hungry ones, for the hungry ones in her house and for others. We, the church, even when things are difficult, we are giving what we receive from heaven. That means there's no interruption to what we receive from heaven. That's why when stuff gets difficult, we don't stop communicating with God. We don't stop praying. We don't stop receiving from heaven to bring to the earth. You probably, many of you, realize that when, when the Bible talks about food, often it's talking about the type of food that feeds us internally. Psalm 23 says, You set out a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, when stuff's really bad, when it's all kicking off around me, and I'm tempted to say, Oh, what's happening? Why has God left me? He hasn't left you. He's just said, Get on, eat. Eat what I'm giving you. This is what the church can do. This is a picture that God inspired in somebody a long, long, long time before there was a church. You can see that in the heart of God, since before time, this has been the desire that he's had for his people. I think this will be the last one we'll do. She's not afraid of tribulation, for all her household is covered in the dual garments of righteousness and grace. Her clothing is beautifully knit together, a purple gown of exquisite linen. Okay, let me just try and unpack the way I thought about this. She's not afraid of tribulation. Tribulation just means, means difficulty. It's not, it's not referring to any kind of theological thing for those of you who are thinking of you know, the great tribulation. It's not talking about that. She's just talking about trouble. And is, is there anybody here this morning who's never experienced trouble? Because I'd love you to pray for me if that's the case. He's not afraid of it. For all their household, that's us, that's the church, all their household are covered in dual garments of righteousness and grace. So everybody is covered in dual garments of righteousness and grace. You're all covered in dual garments of righteousness and grace? Yes, not because you earned it, because God gave them to you. Isn't that right? So you, you, it's not because you're clever, because you're not, okay? I'm not, so I know that you're not. But he gave you these dual garments of righteousness, in other words, a right relationship with God, and grace, in other words, the goodness of God that you can't earn or deserve in any way. Her clothing is beautifully knit together, a purple gown of exquisite linen. Linen is always a picture of righteousness. Linen is pure. The priest's garments in the Old Testament were made of linen. It's always an example of purity. Purple is always an example of royalty. Okay? It's not an example of, uh, you know, the, the poem, When I'm Old, I Shall Wear Purple. It's nothing to do with getting old and a bit scatty. Um, it's to do with royalty. She, the church, <coughs> in difficult times, makes sure that her whole household is covered in purity and royalty. Now, this is where I apply it. How good are we at covering each other in purity and royalty in the church? Because not covering each other in purity and royalty looks like criticism and moaning and uh, theological one-upmanship. 
In other words, we look at that bit of church over there and we say, oh, we're more right than they are. Um, or we look at that person in our congregation and say, I've got some funny ideas. That Graham Coyle, he's really got some funny ideas. Yeah, I have, actually. And some of them I made up, probably. Um, but some of them I got from God. I know that. And the way that, I, that we speak about each other in the church, the way we dress, the garments that we give each other, they can be criticism and they can be grot, or they can be royal and they can be pure. Okay, now we, we can see that throughout the New Testament, but it's here. It's here in the wisdom literature. And the whole point about looking at wisdom literature is that there are treasures for us to find. Okay, I've rushed through that a bit, but I'm just conscious we, we're trying to keep to shorter time in the summer. Let's pray, shall we? Imagine in, in whatever way you want to, a casket in front of you. Just, just one casket. Don't think of a whole warehouse. Just think of one casket. And you open it up, and it is full of beautiful gemstones, beautifully cut. Some of them perhaps not cut. Some of them beautifully cut. And you take them out, and you examine them. You hold them up to the light, and you look at them. And the radiant light uh, shows different things within it. That's what the Lord invites us to do. Father, please help us. Help us understand the things that you are saying. Help us not get put off by the things that we don't understand, but to push in to uh, your understanding for the things that we do understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.